Thank you, Dan and Laura. Please turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3 as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together. The next few times that we're in the Gospel of Luke together, we're going to be looking at kind of a common theme, and that theme is that man, men and women, are sinners who have been separated from a relationship with God due to that sin, and that Jesus Christ has the ability to forgive people of their sins, to rescue them from their sins, and to restore them to a relationship with God. That's kind of the big theme that we'll be looking at over the next several times that we're together in the Gospel of Luke. Men and women are sinners, separated from relationship with God. Due to that sin, Jesus Christ can save men and women from their sinful condition and restore them to relationship with God. Now what I want us to do this morning, as we prepare in our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, is to look at Romans chapter 3, one of the most famous passages that describes our sinful condition. And I want to read through it, and I'm... I was reading this week a a book by a man named Robert Culver, theology that he had written, and he sees Romans chapter 3 and kind of imagines a courtroom scene. And so as you prepare in your hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper together, imagine a courtroom scene with me. The accusation comes in verse 9. The accusation in Romans chapter 3 is that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's the prosecution's statement against every single one of us. All have been charged, both Jews and Greeks, as being under sin. And then the reading of the charges, the justification of that charge continues. Verse 10, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He continues... Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Then as the prosecutor continues, not only does he read the charge and describe the charge, he gives the defense a chance to respond. And we see the defense's response in verse 19. It says, every mouth is stopped. As you and I contemplate the charge against us that every single one of us are sinners, as we see God's word confirming the accuracy of that charge, we're left with no defense whatsoever. And it concludes verse 19, the whole world is held accountable to God. The answer, of course, for the the truth that each of us are dead in our trespasses and sin, the, the answer is, of course, the person of Jesus Christ who rescues us from that state of sin. Fortunately, Romans 3 continues, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation or satisfaction by his 
blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In the coming weeks, as we look at the Gospel of Luke, again, that great theme will be we are sinners. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. How can he be that Savior? The answer is because of his work on the cross. I want you just to take a few moments and bow your heads, close your eyes, and ask God to reveal in your own heart your need for him. Ask God to reveal how that charge against you is true, the charge that that all are under sin. Ask God, who, as we saw last week, knows even the hidden thoughts of our hearts, to, to reveal even hidden sins among us this morning as we prepare to partake the Lord's Supper. And Father, we, as we do prepare to partake of your Lord's Supper, we know that we have the ability to come into relationship with you, to be forgiven of our sins, only because of your Son, Jesus Christ. By his shed blood, we can be received by faith. We have seen your righteousness as you, you passed over our former sins, dealing with sin in the person of Jesus Christ, punishing him in our place. We recognize that. We glorify you. And as we think about our sinful condition and the salvation offered in Jesus Christ over the next few weeks, may our hearts respond with praise, glory, and love for you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Now, if the men would begin to to pass out the Lord's Supper, we're going to take, partake of the bread first in just a moment, and then we'll partake of, of the cup together. If you've never partaken of the Lord's Supper together here at Bethany Community Church, uh, know that uh, there's kind of two layers to the, the communion elements that we're passing out. The first layer contains the, the bread, and the second layer contains the cup. And you need not be a member of our church in order to partake of the Lord's Supper together. You must simply have been a person who has entered into God's family by placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins.
you'd prepare to take the bread with me first. Paul tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you'd prepare to take the cup with me as well. The same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is my covenant and my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, we proclaim the death of our Lord that was satisfaction for our sin until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we are mindful this morning of our great need and of your great provision. And this morning, as a community of faith, we proclaim that provision in your Son, Jesus. And Father, if there be any who have not placed their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, for their salvation, that they would see the testimony of your saints as we recognize the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, as we proclaim our, our faith in him. And they also would respond in faith and receive your free gift of salvation. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. As I mentioned, the next few times we're in the Gospel of Luke are going to be some neat times as we think of that, that theme I mentioned earlier. Now, this week we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Uh, next week we'll be in the Gospel of Luke looking at the story of the paralytic. Uh, next week is also a very important week in the life of our church as we have a, a big meeting during the Sunday school hour and we'll be talking about our uh, commissioning service the following week will be uh, confirming, voting on, whatever term you want to use, uh, some, some men to be elders and some deacons and various other officers in the church. And so I'd encourage you to, to come next Sunday, 9 o'clock. We'll be meeting uh, here in the, the theater. Uh, just uh, an exciting time in the life of our church. And then 
let's see, am I getting my dates right? 18, 25, 2. Two weeks from today is our commissioning service. And the elders from Bethany Baptist Church, who are who is our mother church, will be here to commission our elders to pray for our church as we become uh, officially a church. And so two weeks from today is a very big day in the life of our, our church as well. And we have a special message on May 2nd. And then uh, May 9th, Mother's Day, uh, Pastor Ben will be here. I'll be in Texas at a wedding. And then we'll look at it, the kind of the third story in the series of this Gospel of Luke that deals with man's sin, need for a Savior, Jesus' authority over that sin. Well, please stand with me now as we read verses 12 through 16 of Luke chapter 5 together. We read this, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded as a proof for them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. May God encourage us through his reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. And Father, we continue to ask your blessing upon our worship of you this morning. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, and help us to be able to take your truths and apply them to our lives. We pray this in your gracious Son's name. Amen. In the novel, All the King's Men, by Robert Penn Warren, the main character's name is Jack Burden. And Jack finds himself in the middle of a conflict between two very powerful men. One of the men is the governor of this southern state in which he lives, Governor Willie Stark, who happens to be Jack's boss. And Jack's boss, the governor, Governor Stark, is upset with a very powerful judge in the state, Judge Irwin, who has a reputation for being a very moral, upright judge. And this judge, Judge Irwin, was Jack's kind of boyhood mentor. So Jack finds himself engulfed in this conflict between the governor and the judge. And at the beginning of the novel, the governor tells Jack, Jack, I want you to find some some dirt on the judge. And Jack says, well, maybe there isn't any dirt on the judge. The governor says, you find it. And Jack says, well, what if there's nothing to find? And the governor says this, he says, there's always something and Jack protests, well, maybe, maybe there's not on the, on the judge. And then the governor says this. He says, man is conceived in sin and born in corruption. He passes from the stink of the ditty to the stench of the shroud. There's always something. And indeed, throughout the course of the novel, Jack finds that even the judge has some dirt on him. The governor rightly understands the human condition 
that from the beginning of our lives to the end of our lives, we struggle with our, our sin nature. And apart from the divine intervention of God, we remain in that sin and in that corruption. That's kind of the theme that we'll be dealing with over the next three times in the Gospel of Luke. This idea that, as I've already mentioned this morning, each of us, every man and woman, finds themselves in sin and in need of deliverance from that sin. What Luke is telling us is that Jesus Christ is the Savior that he can save us from our sins, that he has the authority and the ability to rescue us. This morning, as we think of that big theme that's going to kind of inform our topics over the next few weeks in the Gospel of Luke, what we're seeing this morning specifically is that you and I, as we think about our sinful condition and about Christ's ability to save us, you and I should approach Jesus in a certain way. There's a proper way, as we realize our condition and Christ's ability to save us, there's a proper and appropriate way for us to ask him for his mercy. How do we approach Jesus in our sinful condition? How do we approach Jesus who has the ability to save? That's what we will be considering more specifically this morning. Let me suggest to you that there are at least two wrong ways to think about approaching Jesus. One way is to think about that first part of the statement we've been talking about, to think very carefully about how sinful we are and ignore how gracious Christ is and his ability to forgive us. So, for example, a person may say, well, I'm such a terrible person, I'm, I'm such a sinner, I'm so corrupt that I have no ability to approach Jesus. He wouldn't want to save me. He wouldn't want to have a relationship with me. And and in fact, a person may say, well, before I approach Jesus, what I'll try to do is kind of get some, some things in my life in order. As I get those things in my life in order, then I can approach Jesus. There's a character in, in literature that perhaps you've read about named Dr. Faustus. Dr. Faustus makes a deal with the devil. He exchanges his soul for knowledge. As Dr. Faustus soon realizes, he's made a very terrible bargain. And throughout the story of Dr. Faustus, Dr. Faustus, is, Dr. Faustus tries to determine whether or not he'll repent whether or not he'll ask God for forgiveness. And every time, especially in a play by Christopher Marlowe, who deals with this character, Dr. Faustus, every time he seems like he's getting close and is about to repent, he's reminded of his terrible sin. And so he doesn't. There's one scene where an old man approaches Faustus and says, I I can see an angel over your head and he has a a vial full of grace and he desires to pour that grace in your soul. And Faustus is on the verge of repenting and he says, hell and grace wage war within my heart. And he eventually decides he can't go through with asking Jesus for forgiveness because he considers the wretched state in which he's in and thinks Christ wouldn't want to forgive me. That's one wrong way to view approaching God, to say, well, I'm too great of a sinner. My corruption is so great that Christ would never want to forgive me. The other error is kind of the opposite of that. We focus so much on the second statement, we forget the first statement. We focus so much on Christ's graciousness, God's graciousness, that we forget about our own sinful condition. A person with this attitude might say this, look, 
It's a, a plumber's job to fix leaks. It's an architect's job to design buildings. It's an engineer's job to, to work at Caterpillar. Uh, it's God's job to forgive sinners. And so I, sure, I'll go through the motions. I'll ask God for forgiveness, but it's his job. He's got to forgive me. It's in the Bible. It's like a contract. I was in junior high, and there was one of my friends who uh, didn't have a lot of support at, at home for his, his spiritual life. He approached me one time, and he said, I, I'm kind of thinking about Christianity. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ and about the claims that he makes. And I said, hey, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that. And he says, okay. And so we talked about it a little bit, and I gave him a book. And he went home, and he, he read this book cover to cover, junior high kid. And no, no support for it at home. And comes back to me, and just a very, very, very sad conversation I had with him. He talked about Jesus Christ and the claims that he made, and he talked about kind of the worldly life he wanted to live. And he said this to me. He said, look, I've read the book you gave me. I've kind of, I kind of understand the biblical principles in it. And what it seems like to me is this. I can live however I want, and Jesus Christ has to forgive me tragically misunderstanding the depth of our condition, the depth of our depravity, and the type of grace that God offers. So both of those are are wrong ways to think about approaching God as we consider our sinfulness and God's gracious offer of forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ, who has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. What I want to do this morning is talk about the right way to approach Jesus Christ as we consider the fact that we are sinners and he's a savior. Kind of the the main idea, the central point of of the text I think this morning is this, that, that Jesus Christ is gracious and hears the cry of the humble outcast. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is gracious and he hears and responds to the cry of the humble outcast. The person who recognizes their condition, who recognizes the salvation that's offered in the person of Jesus Christ and asks him for forgiveness, Christ hears that cry and responds to it and offers forgiveness. What I want to look at then is four truths that will help us as we approach Jesus Christ. The first truth, and the truth that actually we're probably going to spend the most time on this morning, is this. We must realize our condition. Realize your condition. Verse 12 says this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. We don't know the exact time. We don't know the exact location in which this takes place. But we know at some point in Jesus' ministry, he's in a city And there comes to him a man full of leprosy. That is, the leprosy in his body has reached its its final stages. He's consumed with this disease. The word leprosy in biblical times could refer to a variety of skin conditions. It could refer to ringworm or psoriasis. There's a lot of different things that leprosy could refer to. Very often, though, in Scripture, we see it referring to a disease that we today call Hansen's disease. Now, I don't want to get too graphic in the details here, but sometimes we misunderstand what leprosy was and what it looked like. Leprosy wasn't a a rotting disease. 
the disfigurement that often took place in people with leprosy was sometimes not caused by the disease itself, but the effects of the disease. You see, leprosy would, would deaden the senses. The extreme, extreme parts of the body couldn't feel anymore. They kind of lost their ability to gain warning signs of danger. And so a person with leprosy could put his hand on a very hot surface or in a fire and, and not feel it. A person with leprosy could, could grasp a tool so, so tightly it would, it, would, it would damage the nerves even further. A person with leprosy, sorry about this, a person with leprosy could be eaten on by, by rodents and other animals and not feel it, okay? One doctor, one modern doctor who treats people with, with leprosy will give his patients as they leave his clinic a cat to go home and, and protect them, okay? Leprosy, not a pleasant disease, right? Scripture gives some guidelines in Leviticus for how to identify and how to deal with lepers. In fact, let me just turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and 14 really deal, I'm sorry, Leviticus. Leviticus 13, they both start with L. Uh, Leviticus 13 and 14 deal with how to identify, handle, treat a person with leprosy. Leviticus 13, verse 45, God instructs the people this way. He says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Josephus, a contemporary of, of Jesus, would tell us this. Lepers in a community are like the walking dead. They exist, but people who look at them consider them already gone. Okay, so consider the condition of a leper at this time. A leper has this disease that, that permeates the body. No part of their life is left unaffected by leprosy. A leper is an outcast. All the relationships, the, the family relationships, the social relationships they had have now changed forever. It's a numbing disease. Their ability to feel pain and feel the extremities of their bodies is, is gone. And it's a disease that ends only in death. That's the condition of the leper. Do you sense any parallels with leprosy and anything else in life? Leprosy is a great illustration of sin, right? Like leprosy, sin permeates. Sin permeates. I want you to kind of put on your theologian's hats this morning. We're going to talk a little bit of theology here, more explicitly than normal. There's a type of theology that deals with sin that's called hamartiology. H something something something. No, uh, H A M A R T I O L O G Y. Hamartiology. Ology means study of, and hamartia, hamartia means sin. Hamartiology is the study of sin. Uh, Aristotle, as he was talking about different types of Greek tragic figures, would identify a Greek tragic figure's fatal flaw. What made them fall? And that fatal flaw was what he called hamartia, hamartia, missing the mark is what the word came to mean. So we're talking about theology of sin. And as we look at how leprosy permeates the body, in the same way, in fact, let's think about the four applications here for us as we think about 
about sin. First application is just like sin, or just like leprosy, sin permeates the body. That would be a first application here. Sin permeates the body. There's a word that theologians use entitled, uh, or a phrase that theologians use called total depravity of man. And that doesn't mean that, that men are as bad as they could possibly be. You might say, well, I saw an unbeliever walking by a dog the other day, and he, he didn't kick it. Okay, Therefore, a total depravity must not be true. He, he didn't do all the wickedness that he possibly could. And that, that's not what total depravity means. What total depravity means, or maybe a better term is radical corruption, what that means is that there's no part of our body, no part of who we are, that's not somehow affected by sin. My thinking, my emotions, my spiritual life, my physical body, every part of me is somehow affected by sin. Now, this is a very important truth, and it's why we're spending so much time on it this morning. This truth and accepting this truth changes the way that you live your life and the way that you view your life. Now, the reason that you and I don't do all the wicked things that we could possibly do is because of God's common grace. Common grace is is somewhat like marriage. And guys, you're going to be able to follow this with me better than your wives, perhaps. Guys, why aren't we as terrible as we could possibly be? It's because of our wives. Let's be frank, right? Uh, Whenever my wife is out of town or away, the bed doesn't get made, the laundry doesn't get picked until she's about to come uh, back. There's just kind of this uh, uh, deterioration in my lifestyle when my wife is gone, okay? In fact, Friday, I came home from work. I was a little stressed, and I was talking to Whitney, and she came, came in. She said, how was your day? And I said, stressful. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. We sit down for supper, and she's smiling, and she's chipper. And I said, what's your deal? She, and she said, she said this. She goes, well, I'm just happy I'm married to you. And I said, what are you getting at? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> so. So what do you mean? She goes, well, we're having some people over tonight, and we're going to be talking about our marriage for premarital counseling, and I am just excited I get to talk about how I'm married to you. Well, it's pretty hard to stay stressed out when a person has just told you, I'm happy to be married to you, and I'm so happy that I, I, I get to talk to other people about how I'm married to you. That changed the rest of my evening, right? It caused me to kind of get out of my funk. That's the same way with God's common grace. We're not as bad as we could possibly be, not because of anything within ourselves, but because of the blessings that God gives us, blessings like a conscience, a government. You can debate that. Uh, There are blessings that God gives us that cause us not to be as bad as we could possibly be. But the truth of Scripture is that there is something radically wrong with us, and that thing that's radically wrong with us is called sin. It permeates who we are. That truth has radical consequences. R.C. Sproles was talking to a group of seminary students one time, class of 25 students, And he began talking with them about the idea of predestination and how God has foreknown us and not just foreknown, but he has worked to bring about our salvation from eternity past and and worked to bring about our salvation. And he he asks the class, how many of you believe that idea of, of predestination? And predestination is defined as God not just knowing what's going to happen, but deciding what's going to happen and, and graciously working to bring that to fruition. Class of 25 students one guy raised his hand, and R.C. Sproul said, okay, sounds good. 
He says, let's first talk, before we talk about that, let's talk about this idea of radical corruption. And he went to Scripture and he read verses like, like uh, Genesis 6, 5 and 6, how the heart of man was continually on evil. He read passages like 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, where Solomon's praying. And he says, uh, no one... No one does not sin against God. There's no one who does not sin against God. Psalm 51.5, we are sinners from our birth. Psalm 130, verse 3, if you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have gone to our own way. He read Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? He went through Romans 3, those passages that I mentioned as we were taking communion together. And he convinced those students of the depravity of man, our our corruption based on our observation of life around us and upon what God's Word says. He says, now how many of you in this class of 25 agree with me that, that man is corrupt? He said 25 hands went up. He says, now be careful. Be careful. Do you really agree with me that this is what Scripture teaches? Again, 25 students' hands went up. So he went over to the whiteboard, and he wrote the number 25 and the date in which all the students agreed to this doctrine of radical corruption. And he left a note for the janitor not to erase that portion of the whiteboard. And then he began to teach the next time about this idea of predestination and about God's gracious hand at work in our lives in order to bring us to salvation. And he said that immediately, the, the howls of protest, no, that can't be true. What about free will and all these things? He said, ah, ah, ah. remember, tap the whiteboard. You've already lost the debate. <laughs> you've, once you've conceded radical corruption, it affects how you view all other doctrines. Now, as I read the story, as R.C. Sproul wrote it, he didn't say how convincing the students found that argument, but I think his point is well taken. Once you agree that we are radically corrupt, that there is something wrong at our very core, it affects how you view so many other aspects of life. It affects how you believe salvation occurs. It affects how you even evangelize. How do you share the gospel with other people? What do you believe the the purpose of the gospel is? It affects whether you focus your theology on a man-centered theology or a God-exalting theology. Very oftentimes, theology in the evangelical circles and Christian evangelical circles is very weak. Kind of this this mamby-pamby theology. Man is good and and just there's kind of a few kinks in your personality and and Jesus will kind of get a chisel and cheeky here, cheeky here, and you'll be all new. Understanding that man is radically corrupt is it's not just, you don't just need a, a little bit of body work, you need a complete overhaul. And it's only by God's divine intervention that you have that ability to do so. I was at a banquet a few years ago where a, a pastor in this area, a very prominent church, speaking to a bunch of Christians, made this claim. He said, the biggest problem facing, the, it's, this is in the context of a gospel message too, He said, the biggest problem facing Peoria today is poverty. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? That's a pastor saying that? The biggest problem of which poverty is a symptom, in in some cases, the biggest problem is our sin. 
the biggest problem is that you and I are separated from God because of our sin, and because this sin permeates us, we have no ability of regaining access and relationship to God in and of ourselves. Sin, first of all, permeates us. These are four applications. I'm still on the first application, the first point. This isn't going well. Um, Realize your condition. Understand that sin permeates you. We can go through the, the next applications a little more quickly. Understand that sin makes you an outcast. 1 Peter 3.18 says that the purpose of Jesus Christ dying was to the sinner for uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Third application here, just like leprosy, sin has a numbing effect in our lives. As we continue on the path of sin apart from the divine intervention of God, we continue to, to, to fall deeper and deeper into sin. Then finally, like leprosy, sin results in death. Realize your condition. Understand, apart from God's grace, that's where each of us are. Well, second thing, second truth here is not only do we need to realize our condition, we must recognize, or you must recognize your need. Look at the next part of verse 12. He's in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and it says, and when he saw Jesus. Now Matthew and Mark tell us that this wasn't some random encounter. Matthew and Mark, as they tell the story, said that the the leper was seeking out Jesus. It wasn't as if the leper just happened to see Jesus and saw some people around him. This leper understood two things. And these two things that he understood affected him very deeply. They were enough to cause him, this leper who was supposed to be an outcast from society, not supposed to be in these cities, supposed to be separated from these cities, they caused him to endure the humiliation of having to go into these cities where this town where more people would be, to endure the look that, remember, this is a guy who's full of leprosy. There's some things that are very physically offsetting about his appearance. As he recognizes his need, it's enough to cause him to go into these towns and have to shout out, unclean, unclean, as he looks for Jesus. Two things that he recognized. One, he recognized that he did not have the ability in and of himself to cure himself. As he thought about his condition, as he realized that he was, uh, that he was a, a leper, and as he saw what this disease was doing, first of all, he realized there's nothing I can do in and of myself to cure myself of this this disease. Secondly, he recognized that this guy, Jesus, could do something. I can do nothing. Jesus could do everything. The applications there, of course, I think are very obvious. One, we understand that we can do nothing to save ourselves from our sins. Secondly, Jesus can do everything. The third truth here, as we think about how we should approach Jesus, one, we must realize our condition. Secondly, we must recognize our need that this condition cannot be saved, remedied in and of ourselves. So the third thing we must do is request Christ's mercy. Look at verse 12 again. It says he saw Jesus, and this is what he does. As he sees Jesus, Luke tells us he does four things. First of all, he's reverent. He fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The first thing we see about his approach of Jesus is there's reverence behind it. 
Next, we see that there's an, an earnestness to his approach of Jesus. He, in the Gospel of Mark, we see that he kind of repeats this phrase, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's earnest in his desire to have Jesus help him. Thirdly, we see here he's, he's humble. If you will, you, you can do this. I'm not saying you have to, but, but, but you can. Which also, the fourth thing this demonstrates is, is faith. This leper, as he approaches Jesus, believes that he has the ability, the ability, Jesus has the ability to heal him. He requests Christ's mercy. And as he approaches Jesus, he does so with those four attributes. I want to tell you a story, and I don't want to tell you the story so that you judge the person I'm telling the story about. I want you to see yourself, because I see myself in this person. Whitney and I were living in Dallas, first year of marriage, zero dollars essentially. And we saved up some money to get some, some ice cream one evening. And so, you know, like literally like a plastic bag full of coins or something, we're going to go get this ice cream. And as we go into the store to get this ice cream, there's a woman there. And she says, um, I'm very hungry. Could, can you buy me some food? And this ice cream store is right next to a grocery store. And we say, well, sure, would you like us to go to the grocery store? No, I'd like some ice cream, she says. Okay. So I, I look and I figure, okay, I think we can, I think we can do all three here. And uh, I, I say, I'd like a uh, cup of chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, my ice cream of choice. Uh, birthday's in September. Um, Whitney, Whitney would like a, uh, I better be careful with that. It, my birthday is in November. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, Whitney says, I like a, an uh, um, what is it, Oreo, uh, what's that called? Oreo cookies and cream. Right, thank you. Uh, cookies and cream, <laughs> ice cream. And uh, then we turn to this woman. What would you like? Well, I like fudge and nuts and this and that. And, and I'm, you know, I'm doing the calculations on my head. I think this is getting really expensive. And she never asked once we were in the store, it was like a kid in an ice cream store. And uh, then at the very end, and she said, oh, and make it. And the guy goes, you want a single scoop or double? She said, triple. Okay. And then, no thank you at the end, right? Now, you and I have enough social savvy to know at least how to appear grateful. But I wonder if sometimes, as we think about those two ways to approach Jesus, one, refusing to approach Jesus at all because we think, oh, we're such sinners. The second being approaching him with presumption, arrogance, you have to forgive me. I wonder how often you and I, though we don't express it the way that woman did, respond the way that she did. Yeah, Jesus, I did this, this, and this, and this. Please forgive me. This leper, as he approaches Jesus, approaches Jesus the right way. There's a sense of reverence, and these are kind of four applications here. You approach Jesus with reverence, not arrogance. Jesus isn't your your dude, your buddy, your homeboy that you kind of approach flippantly. He is God, and you need God to rescue you from your sins. And so, first of all, you approach him reverently. You also approach him with earnestness. I understand the depth of what I've done. 
At least I, I'm trying to understand the depth of, I, of what I've done. I can't understand the depth of what I've done because I can't fully understand your holiness. And without understanding your holiness, I don't understand the depth of my transgression. But God, I know that I've transgressed and I need your forgiveness. I realize my condition. I recognize my need. And now I'm requesting your mercy earnestly. Also, as we request his mercy, we're humble. Get this. Whenever you ask God for forgiveness, it's not some sort of trans- transaction. Like, okay, God, I'm going to give you an apology, and you're going to give me forgiveness. And we'll kind of work some deal out here, and we both get something in exchange. My kids have some chores to do in our home, and our children uh, have this very elaborate economic system of how to decide who's doing which chores. They'll exchange, like, sweeping for cleaning the dishes and a turn you know, playing a game, and it's a very, comp- like, it makes our, our federal economy look very simple by comparison. And, you know, heaven help you if you somehow mishandle that transaction. It's like an economic collapse, like the housing industry. Um, that's our children. They have this, this transaction that takes place. You do this, I'll do this, you do this. Okay, that's not how it works with God. What I'm talking about here in approaching Jesus isn't some sort of uh, step-by-step process by which you gain his approval. You are beseeching a sovereign king for his mercy. Mercy which you and I have no right in and of ourselves to request. And so a person that's rightly approaching Jesus, requesting his mercy, is humble And yet at the same time, the fourth application here, not only are they reverent, or not only are we reverent, not only are we earnest, not only are we humble, we also have faith as we request Christ's mercy. We're not presuming that he has any sort of obligation to forgive us, but we're having faith because of his divine promises in his word to always forgive those who ask for his forgiveness. We realize our condition, we recognize our need, we request, we request Christ's mercy, and then finally, we receive Christ's gift. Look at verse 13, and I know I'm, I'm spending less time dealing with more verses. We're going to talk about some similar themes that are in verses 13 through 16 as we continue through Luke. Let me read through these. It says, and Jesus stretched out his hand and, and touched him. I think that's very important. Remember, this is a leprous person. Jesus touches him, and as he does so, he says, I will be clean." And immediately the leprosy left him. Verse 14, Jesus kind of gives a strange instruction. He says, he charged him to tell no one. He says, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. And what I think he's talking about here is is an issue of timing. Jesus understands that the time is not yet for him to be publicly manifested in all his glory. But it's a time to, to vindicate his ministry to the priests, to give them an opportunity to respond to his claims as Messiah. Unfortunately, we know from Matthew and Mark, and also here from the Gospel of Luke, he says, but, that, in other words, the leper didn't do what he was supposed to do. He did proclaim uh, Jesus' healing to other people. He says, but, and the result was, now even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Notice their coming to Jesus wasn't necessarily theologically informed. He was kind of the the big act in town. They come, they prevent his ability to do ministry in some ways. 
is forced, verse 16, to withdraw to desolate places and pray. And I don't believe verse 16 is the main point of this passage, but don't miss its significance. Even Jesus Christ, as he did this ministry, this ministry offering forgiveness, needed the strength of God in order to do it. How do we approach Jesus? So think about the depth of our need, each person in here. How do we approach Jesus? And perhaps you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You're you're separated from God. How do you approach Jesus? With unbiblical humility, saying, oh, you never want to forgive me, essentially calling Christ a liar. Or with arrogance. Hey, I've heard you're the forgiving guy. I need some forgiveness. I'll, I'll take a dozen. Or do we first realize our condition? The fact that each of us are in dire need because of our condition. And as we realize our condition, we recognize our need that we in ourselves can't give ourselves what we need. And as we realize that, we must, what? Request Christ's mercy. As we request his mercy, we do so with reverence, We do so with earnestness, with humility, with faith that he will do what he says he's going to do. And therein we receive his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great mercy that you offer us through your son Jesus. And I pray that you would cause our hearts to be sensitive to our sin. That we would quickly ask for your forgiveness. Not flippantly, not arrogantly with the confidence that comes not in ourselves, but the confidence that we have in you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.